Hey, it's Ryan LaCroix. Before we get started, I wanted to ask for your help. KOSU relies on financial support from our listeners. These are folks who give $10 a month or a one-time gift of $20. Then it all goes into one pot to pay for the news, information, and entertainment you hear every day on KOSU. And it helps us explore a little bit and create cool podcasts like this one. If you already give to KOSU, thank you. And if not, head over to KOSU.org and click the donate button to get started. Every little bit helps. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. A majority of voters in the Super Tuesday Democratic primary picked former Vice President Joe Biden with nearly 39% approval. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders came in second with a little more than 25%. Meanwhile, former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg and Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren came in third and fourth, respectively. Ryan, your thoughts on Tuesday's elections? I, mean, I think uh, Senator uh, or Vice President Biden benefited from the consolidation of the moderate base. And you know, the, there was a really interesting uh, study on how much actual the value of the earned media that he got out of the Judge and the Klobuchar endorsement. And they put that at around $75 million in, in valuation of earned media. You know, think about that. Mike Bloomberg spent five, has spent $500 million plus of his own money over the course of several months. Joe Biden got a $75 million hit less than 48 hours mm-hmm. before Election Day on Super Tuesday. So I think that you know, he definitely has the momentum behind him right now. It's, uh, there's still a path to victory for Senator Sanders. But you know, we, we see now this two distinct wings of the Democratic Party. And as we're taping this morning, just moments ago, we got notification that Senator Elizabeth Warren is leaving the presidential race. So it really is a Mike two-person. Bloomberg dropped out earlier. Mike Bloomberg's week, yeah. out. I mean, this is a two-person race at this point. And uh, I, I don't think it's going to be resolved anytime soon. And it's, it's going to be incumbent upon both Senator Sanders and the vice president to find a way to unite the party. Because right now, these two distinct wings are you know, seem pretty dug in mm-hmm. uh, as, as to their respective positions. Uh, Neva? I, I think you're right, Ryan, in terms of dug in and their respective positions. And that does make for a very interesting uh, remainder of the primary season for the Democrats. But looking at Oklahoma this week, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to note that there was such a dramatic uh, uh, downturn uh, yeah. from four years ago in, in turnout, turnout. Uh, yeah. both um, both among Democrats down about 30,000 plus Republicans down about 160, almost 165,000. And that, you know, we have to take into account that there was basically on the Republican side, even though the president had five other uh, folks on the ballot, he got 93% of the vote. There was no real campaign effort. Uh, everyone knew that this was going to be uh, uh, Trump country and the mm-hmm. votes would reflect that. But when you look at the turnout, not only the, the downturn, but the fact that there were only, uh, the projection is that there were only about 10% percent of the voters that were 18 to 29 years old mm-hmm. and you had 35 percent of, of the uh, the folks coming out in the 65 plus category which goes back to what we always talk about is who turns out mm-hmm. and that obviously had a had a dramatic impact it would appear on the Sanders camp Absolutely. who relied yeah. on that so heavily uh, four years ago when they basically ran ran away with it and had the best uh, uh, the best percentage across the country in terms of their the, their primary votes. So it, it's a it's an interesting uh, season. I think when you look at the folks that were in the race in Oklahoma, we clearly can make the uh, make the uh, assertion that money is not 
not uh, the total game. Uh, organization is not the total game. It's about the candidate, how they connect. But Joe Biden, who never came to Oklahoma uh, during the during the camp during the campaign, actually was the guy that got 47 percent of all of the late deciders. The last weekend, when all of that free publicity was taking place, he was the guy that benefited from it, not only in Oklahoma but swept across the southern states. And I got to ask you also about about Bernie Sanders because Bernie Sanders won in 2016. Mm-hmm. How much do you think the vote in 2016 was less a vote for Bernie Sanders and more a vote against Hillary Clinton? Because Oklahomans do not like Hillary Clinton. Well, no, but, you know, Hillary Clinton won the primary against Barack Obama uh, back in 2008 pretty handily. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I do think that uh, there was probably some of that happening back in 2016. It was a two-person race in 2016 mm-hmm. walking in. It was it was a, just a very different dynamic. And we also, as Democrats, weren't uh, wrestling with how to best beat uh, the existential threat of another four years of the presidency of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's it's a very different dynamic. And, you know, Neva's right, you know, the, the downturn and turnout, Republicans are, are to be excused for not showing up uh, in it's, huge it numbers. Was it, was, foregone confusion. it was a foregone conclusion. Democrats, I mean, it, and this is not just in Oklahoma, it's around the nation in, in, in several states, but uh, but in particular in Oklahoma, pundits are kind of scratching their head, campaign operatives are scratching their head, and they're like, are, are we even relevant anymore? Because you, you think about, what happened in, in 2020 with the, with the uh, not with the Biden campaign, they weren't here at all, but with Sanders, with Senator Warren, with, uh, with Bloomberg, huge amounts of money and infrastructure plugged in, probably more organization, more doors knocked, more phone calls made in 2020 than in 2016, and we still had a lower turnout. That's really, that's concerning for Democrats in Oklahoma. And it could be concerning also under the general, general election. If we don't get, if we don't have the kind of turnout that we're expecting, I mean, this could be very disappointing for people. And I think perhaps it's less a forecast of the general election in a presidential year, but certainly could uh, uh, say something about the upcoming June primaries where, you know, many folks will be on the ballot. Right. There, yeah, there yeah. will be uh, contests. And it, it does speak to the fact that it is still it is still about connecting with the voters. And that takes a full scale campaign. All of those things have to click and, and, and really work well together. And it's not about uh, it, it at the end of the day it really is it about issues is it about personality is it about party it's about all of those things and and when we get into the political season in the fall in the presidential campaign it will be a really dramatic contrast between the republican nominee and the democrat nominee and i think that will be the challenge is will that up the turnout which uh, you know by all estimations uh, you know the early forecast would suggest that it will but uh, what we saw on super tuesday certainly kind of uh, gives pause to that i think it's going to play out for a while and we've got you know two candidates that have seen their fortunes rise and, and fall throughout the course of this campaign you've got now the 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 you know the putative front, front runner and, and vice president biden you know th- he's a gaff machine and so i mean i think that the the ability for him to lose the primary the ability for senator sanders to you know retool and rethink about how to consolidate the party base uh and independent voters moving forward this thing is still wide open oh yeah it's still, it's, got a long it's way still to go. wide open yeah. and it still could be a very hotly contested uh, convention something we haven't seen in many many years and in, in either party and so that i think would be the uh, the biggest thing that we could see uh, on the horizon that might take place and one thing we do know is uh, oklahomans like their alcohol uh, election results on Tuesday also saw the elimination of the blue laws in seven counties. This Sunday, if a liquor store in Oklahoma, Tulsa, Muskogee, Washington, Kingfisher, Cleveland, or Creek counties chooses, it can open this Sunday to sell alcohol. Al- approved 
ranges approval ranged from 56% in Muskogee County to 72% in Cleveland and Tulsa counties. Neva, are you surprised by this support? I, I don't think anyone was particularly surprised, and, and I think that's why there was really no organized campaign on either the support or disapproval side. Mm-hmm. It was uh, largely a foregone conclusion in these counties, and 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 basically it was about really giving uh, parity to uh, uh, to the the local liquor liquor stores to be able to compete with convenience stores and grocery stores who were already able to do that based on the, the laws that have passed previously. So it really leveled the playing field, I think, was the argument that most of the local uh, liquor store owners uh, advocated. And many of them have even said, look, we may or may not uh, open. It may, be a, it may be an issue of do we want the increased cost and personnel and, and all of the other things that go along with that. But in, in all of these counties, the seven that were on the ballot uh, on Tuesday, I mean, what is significant is is that uh, the top three largest counties uh, had 70 plus uh, mm-hmm. uh, approval and on the remaining four uh, it was anywhere from 59 to 68 percent so that's a very significant mm-hmm. percentage uh, uh, and I think uh, what we what will be interesting looking down the road is will these other counties uh, put this on the ballot I mean it's a county by county all 77 counties have to make the decision do we want to bring this before the voters and the Board of County Commissioners you know making that uh, vote typically to allow it to go to the ballot. Will that happen in every county? I think we'll see that in some in some cases it will be uh, slow coming. But uh, I think that will be uh, that will be again kind of what the local community really pushes for and wants to see whether or not they can make their voice heard at the ballot on the issue. Well, slow coming. It's 1986 when we passed liquor by the drink, and there are still counties out there that have yep. not passed liquor by the drink. Ryan, I mean this these these laws these blue laws are relics and artifacts of prohibition. I mean. You know, even going back, you know, before the 1980s, I mean, we've been dealing with this. You know, Oklahoma was the the first state to enter the union with prohibition in our constitution. In our constitution I mean, we, right. I mean, you know, alcohol has been a constitutional issue for so long that now that as we begin to remove more and more of that from the constitution and put it into statute and laws, you know, we're having to you do these. And one of the the things that you hear from folks is, I didn't even know that this was a thing. <laughs> uh, like they they walked into the ballot box and they saw them. Well, of course, I want to be able to. Uh, you know, I was explaining to my daughter. I was like, this is the president. I showed my five year old. Or showing her the ballot, and I said, "This is for uh, the president. This one's for parks, and this one's for you know, so mom and dad can buy beer and wine on Sundays." It wasn't an absentee ballot. It wasn't an absentee ballot. It was not an absentee ballot. We we went and voted early though at the Oklahoma <laughs> County Election Board. You know, you know, I think gone are the days where you know deacons would go and go in the back door of the liquor store and buy a bottle on a Saturday and then preach against it on a Sunday. Uh, and you know, that's and, and they they still may, but their political power I think is waning on those on that regard. This really wasn't a moral issue. You know, alcohol ballots used to be a real mor- uh, you know, morality play uh, among the constituency, and that's just not what it is now. Neva's exactly right. It was about fairness. Uh, you know, you've, we, as we've changed our liquor laws and people can walk into a big box store and be able to purchase wine uh, or, or strong beer on a Sunday, and your mom and pop uh, liquor stores can't. I mean, it's about fairness, and I think people saw it. So I think some people saw it as leveling the playing field. I think most people walked into the ballot box and saw it and just said, well, duh, I want to be able to do this. Yeah. Why can't I do this already? And I think it's also that it's it's because they might, the liquor stores would have to be open an extra day, but they're open on the day that their customers are off. The whole idea of the, your customers are off for the day and not allowing them to go buy stuff, that's just, that's that's <laughs> bad economy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so anyway, uh, Oklahoma City voters decide not to increase a sales tax for parks. The ballot initiative to add an eight cent sales tax for the 169 municipal green spaces failed on Tuesday by a vote of 56,000 against and only 50,000 in favor. Ryan, what happened here? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, I just want to you know give a, a huge thanks to former Councilman Ed Shadid for even putting this on the ballot. I mean, the, the amount of personal time and, and resources he invested to get this on the ballot uh, I think is, is commendable. He, he recognized that our parks around the, uh, around the city are, many of them are in dilapidated conditions. We have to have partnerships with private entities so that we can even keep the mode in some instances. I mean, this is a real problem for Oklahoma. And we passed maps, and I think there's a sense that, you know, there's parks and maps, but those parks are really limited. You know, we, we're not really taking care of all of our parks through the maps program. This was something that Councilman Shadid, you know, really felt uh, felt strongly about and gave us an opportunity to vote on it. And even though it failed, after a 100000 maybe $200,000 campaign led by a dark money group that, if if we're all just being honest with ourselves, is is most likely the, the Oklahoma City Chamber of Commerce. And if they're, if I'm wrong about that, prove me wrong. Come out and say that it's not you. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was the Chamber of Commerce that, that funded this effort to say that we don't want this tax, we don't want to invest in parks that we don't play in. Uh, that's, that's, I think, a really selfish move on their part. But if you look at the number of votes uh, that this got, it got more yes votes. Even though it failed, it got more yes votes than the total amount of MAPS 4 votes that were cast for or against MAPS 4. Uh, so huge support for this. I think the council would be wise to, to look at this issue and not let it die. Neva? I think what was clear is that the voters did understand what the issue was, and it was that it was a one-eighth cent sales tax that was a permanent tax. And I think, you know, when we've seen other measures, uh, uh, citizen initiatives that have come forward that have been successful, uh, they have been uh, revenue streams for uh, the sales tax for public safety and the Oklahoma City Zoo. But when you look in this instance, it's coming on the heels. The idea of an eighth of a cent sales tax, uh, $13 million a year, which was a 50% increase in the uh, park and rec budget. And to say that that, that this needed to be uh, before the, the voters as something that was a necessity when in December, just 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 a few months ago, we had $140 million that uh, passed for parks and $63 million for uh, neighbor, neighborhood parks. So, you know, I think it was a hard sell. I think it was something that uh, uh, folks thought if it just was low-key, I think some of the proponents thought, well, maybe it'll just kind of sail through and and uh, we'll concentrate on certain targeted groups that we think will come out in the uh, uh, for the presidential uh, uh, preference election. And that just didn't work. And the fact that a, a, any group comes in, whether it's uh, throughout the course of the campaign or just at the end, like the group that you're that you're talking about, Secure Oklahoma and advocate for or against, that's part of this process. So, I mean, I always, uh, you know, applaud folks that are willing to put time, money, and effort behind uh, their view uh, of an issue and try to advocate uh, for or against. And and in this instance, I think we clearly saw, and in particular, we saw voters in um, in parts of Oklahoma County, the Cleveland County portion and the uh, Canadian County portion that really had the largest uh, margins in terms of opposition. And I think that goes back to speaking about the, the notion of you have to know where the voters are and where they think on these mm-hmm. issues. Those are areas that are no tax increase people. I mean, you you see it time and time again on the ballots and to try to uh, just kind of uh, uh, kind of gloss over that and pretend like maybe they won't know there's an election or maybe they won't turn out. I think we saw the impact of that in this election. Supporters of Medicaid expansion are calling on the governor to set a date to vote on state question 802. 
Petitioners broke records last October when they turned in more than 300,000 signatures to get it on the ballot. Now, nearly five months later, the governor hasn't announced anything. So a new petition with a thousand signatures was turned into his office, urging him to set a date. Neva, why the delay? I don't know if there's a delay. It's just the governor hasn't uh, hasn't said uh, when the election's going to take place. And I think that you know these folks, uh, their position is look, uh, respect the will of the Oklahoma voters and and set the date. And he has, I mean, legitimately, I mean, from from the standpoint of how long he can take, he can wait till August uh, to to make the determination, which means it would be on the November ballot. But if it's going to be on the primary ballot at the end of June, he's got until April 20th, the governor, to set this election. So the clock is ticking. People want to know. And I think uh, I think in the instance of, of this group, I mean, I think this was just a, a, a more of a concerted effort to bring attention to it, uh, particularly with what's going on in the legislature with the stalled effort mm-hmm. on St- to, uh, Sooner Care 2.0 and the governor, you know, uh, at an impasse with lawmakers on uh, what's going to happen with the shop bill and other things. And I think the fact that they also rolled out a, a poll again that they had commission the proponents of of uh, of this uh, state question saying that 67 uh, percent of Oklahomans uh, do support uh, ex- expansion of uh, uh, Medicaid expansion and also that 71 percent according mm-hmm. to the yeah. poll that they released said that they don't really trust politicians to uh, to create a better way to deal with this situation so they're clearly on the campaign stump mm-hmm. of trying to advocate and and and, and continue to, to uh, push their push their position at a time when there's no real uh, opposition campaign to this uh, out there at all, and I don't think that will happen until we see what date we're really looking at for this election. Right. Big surprise from Neva's poll numbers that she just mentioned. Uh, according to those numbers, 29% of Oklahomans do trust politicians, and I, I want to know who those 29% of Oklahomans are. <laughs> I want to oh, talk to. Really? I want to talk to these people. <laughs> They're the greatest voters ever. Uh, I, you know, I think that you know part of this is some political gamesmanship by the governor's office. You know, part of uh, you know he's he's obviously waiting on the recovery of his own Medicaid expansion plan in the uh, uh, in the legislature, and there's there's real question as to whether or not that's going to come to fruition at all. Uh, I think that there's also some political political gamesmanship in that if he can hold on to this and you're the 802 campaign, you have to plan. I mean, you're, these campaigns are are they call them campaigns for a reason. They are campaigns. They they are they are very intensive efforts. 802 folks are already out doing town halls all around the state. I mean, I've talked to some of their organizers. They are just you know. Uh, I was talking to Sasha Prima Shah who is working on uh, or Sasha Prima Shah who's working on some of this stuff uh, in Western Oklahoma. The uh, the the types of uh, uh, town halls that they're having the conversations no, for, eight, for 802. Yeah. I mean, this is really the 802 yeah, campaigns out. They're out there doing this stuff. But when they when they launch that full campaign uh, and they're organizing, collecting voter IDs and getting ready for election day and communicating with voters, you you need to know. You know, you work backwards from election day when you're planning. How many days do I and, have to do this? And yeah. if the governor holds on to this and then you know announces it at the last moment for a June primary ballot or an August runoff ballot. That puts you at a planning disadvantage, uh, and so I think that it is incumbent upon the governor to you know, set a date. You know, if he really believes that 802 is the wrong direction for Oklahoma, he needs to get out there and campaign against it. Uh, but you know, set a date. Let's let the uh, folks of Oklahoma decide uh, whether they want this or not. Putting on the primary though has its own drawback. We found that out with medical marijuana. That you get the really passionate people out there, and this is something that is very passionate for oh, yeah. people to support. I, for for Governor Sid, if he wants to, this to fail. 
putting it on the primary might not be the best plan. Well, and it's and it is a political calculation, and I think the governor clearly had had hopes and still has hopes. I mean, he's still I think out there trying to figure out a way can they negotiate a deal with lawmakers uh, to do something uh, with with respect to uh, getting the uh, percentage the 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 money that they would need to be able to go with his plan, which would be uh, the uh, block grant uh, proposal that uh, is part of the uh, Trump administration's uh, overall plan. But to do this, it's going to take additional dollars, and I think that's where the rub is because the because the impasse is how much is that going to be? I mean, how much would the increase be? The governor clearly has a higher number than what the uh, Senate Appropriations Chair was willing to go, and that's where that bill uh, apparently stalled this week. And I think the other thing is, you know, when you look at the makeup of the legislature, you have the Oklahoma Hospital Association association out there very aggressively, very strongly, uh, you know, talking to lawmakers. These uh, rural hospitals, uh, many, many of which are, you know, on almost life support themselves in terms of, you know, the financial uh, position that they're in now. I mean, there is a lot of pressure, you know, coming to bear on multiple fronts, uh, you know, by business groups, by the hospital association, by others. And so it will be interesting to see how, how this finally takes shape from the legislative perspective. And that ultimately, will have some impact on the, uh, I think, on the view of voters as they begin to see a campaign rollout uh, for and against uh, this this question. Right. Does the state question 802 people have any legal standing that they could say that, although there's nothing led in statute or the Constitution that says he has to set it by a certain amount of time, is there a, a, an argument to go to the Supreme Court and say he's delaying what the people have tried to say? I think that he would have to at least set it for an election by the end of this year. So the, this November 2020 election, I, I, I don't think that there's uh, there's nothing that commands the governor to do that but we we reckon you know, the very first right reserved in our state constitution is the right to initiative and petition and and, and, and yeah, to be able to petition your government and and here is uh here if the governor tried to frustrate that indefinitely i think that the court could step in i don't think that you can go to a court right now and say he's got to set an election date whenever he still has options in front of him. But if, if it got to a point where we were up on that August, you know, 20, I think it's August 23rd or so is the 24th, 24th yeah. is the date. That's the date that they print the ballots. They got to print ballots so that they can get out for absentee ballots. You know, um, uh, Oklahomans that are stationed yes. overseas, military overseas, uh, so that they have an opportunity to vote. So August 24th is that drop deadline. If the governor doesn't set it uh, by then, or there's an indication that he's not, I do think that it would be, uh, uh, it wouldn't be beyond the pale for the 802 campaign to go to the Supreme Court and, and ask the court to demand that the governor do and this. And I think there's no expectation that the governor is going to stall and not set an election this year. I think the question is, when is yeah, that? And, that he, right. and he is taking his time. And, and again, it's part of the overall, the overall mix of what's going on at the legislature mm -hmm. as well as setting the state. A measure heading to the full House of Representatives makes it harder for initiative petitions to get before voters. House Joint Resolution 1027, which would require a vote of the people to pass, requires signatures from 8% of people in each congressional district for a statutory change or 15% for a constitutional amendment. Ryan, what would this mean for initiative petition? Well, and not just 8%, 8% of registered voters. Right now it's 8% or 15% of folks that voted in the last gubernatorial election. 8% of registered voters, let's leave aside the, ge the geographic part for a second, That and 15% respectively, that would put us, you know, for a constitutional amendment, north of 350,000 signatures uh, for a group to be able to get. Keep in mind that the state question 802 campaign spent around $2 million, $2 million plus to be able to get their signatures along with paid signature collect collection efforts and volunteers 
they turned in a record number of signatures, and even after all of the signatures were counted, uh, they were still under the 300,000 number. So even 802 that broke a record uh, and spent uh, millions of dollars, they wouldn't have qualified under this new law. It would make uh, ballot and initiative work in Oklahoma virtually impossible, if not entirely impossible. I think it's incredibly short-sighted. I think that when you look at the, the folks that have access to this fundamental right, it's the very, you look at the Oklahoma Constitution, the very first right reserved to the people is the right to initiative and referendum. And this would, uh, we would still uh, ostensibly have that, but they're going to gut that very fundamental right. People on the right, you know, uh, pro-life activists that have used the ballot process mm-hmm. in the past uh, to, you know, right-left coalitions that have worked on criminal justice reform measures, none of that, state question 780, none of that would have happened. The alcohol laws that we're now uh, benefiting from, you know, some of those, uh, you know, wouldn't have happened. Those, those, are, those are real things that, uh, real consequences of this legislation. I, I think it's incumbent upon Republicans and Democrats and independents to protect this fundamental and, right. Yeah, and even it seems like these are basically just trying to attack things like state question 802, but it, both sides, right and left, use this initiative process when, when the lawmakers won't get the job done. And that's right, and I think what looking at what is transpiring, I think we have to kind of take it in, in its context. I mean, it really is kind of a rural-urban uh, mm-hmm. fight to, mm-hmm. some, to some degree because we have a rural lawmaker who basically says, look, you know, right now you can basically take Tulsa and Oklahoma County and maybe a few of the surrounding, uh, you know, areas in the metroplexes, and you can get all the signatures you want all day long for whatever measure you want to bring before the voters, and it basically leaves the rural folks out of the equation. That's his argument. Uh, So uh, that's kind of where this starts from. Ryan is right. Will it get traction? Will it be something that uh, uh, people see that that's a real issue, and maybe that that would uh, uh, give uh, rise to the idea that we should uh, have some component of congressional, you know, congressional districts and and percentages in those districts as part of the uh, overall makeup of getting it done? I don't know, but I think I think it's one of those things that when it kind of gets thrown out there on the table, it does give pause. Everybody has to sit and really, you know, take a serious look at it and say, is this a change that's really needed? Uh, you know, we have seen a rise in, in, in the uh, petition process uh, in recent years in Oklahoma, and that is something, ultimately, as we say, it is the, it's the right of the voters to bring these issues uh, before all Oklahomans, and ultimately, Oklahomans have a say if they want to go to the ballot box and express their, their will on the matter. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if this makes it uh, uh, through the entire legislative mm-hmm, process right. this session or whether it gets set aside or whether uh, uh, and, and where the governor weighs in on it if it happens to make it to his desk. Well, it won't actually make it to his desk because it's that's a right. That's right. House Joint Resolution. It did pass a committee. That's right. It, it did pass the committee. That's right. But, I mean, it doesn't. I'm thinking of the McCall there, bills there was, that, they, they, that also kind yeah, of was, delve into some of this that are do, house bills. Yeah. That are house bills. Yeah. There was only one no vote against it in committee. You know, speaking with you know some of my but sources do you think at the, the Capitol. Rules, I mean, it was, yeah, was the House. Yeah, floor. the House Rules Committee. And there's a you know speaking to my sources at the Capitol. There seems to be a lot of momentum behind this. And I would just say to to the representative that says that the the rural folks are left out. Speaking as as a guy, I live in Oklahoma City now, but my heart's in rural Oklahoma. And I'll, I'll tell you that when we when we uh, get those things on the ballot. All of us have a vote. Uh, you know, you're, whether you're in Sealing, Oklahoma, or Seminole, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma City, all of our votes count the same. And so that's where the check from rural Oklahoma can step up. Is you know, rural Oklahoma, even though 
uh, you know, Oklahoma City and Tulsa are increasingly more consolidated and, and have more and more of the political power in Oklahoma. Rural Oklahomans can come together and fight uh, and, and fight against that. And they have. They've, they've overruled Oklahoma City and Tulsa in the past. And I don't think that there's uh, that was the last time that it'll happen. It'll probably happen again. I do think that, you know, some reforms, you know, some of the transparency reforms that Speaker McCall talks about where when you have to file your ethics paperwork, when you need to start disclosing your expenditures and your contributions, that to me makes sense. I'm, I'm all for that. I think that more transparency is better. You know, so Speaker McCall's transparency angle, great. Uh, these these new signature thresholds, I think, just destroy the whole process. And they still have to go to the House floor and through the Senate. So it's a matter of whether or not that's going to have any support over on the Senate side as well. Right. Orion and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.